I'm starting a new series, a new sermon series this morning called When You Come Together. And these are going to be sermons over the next few weeks from 1 Corinthians. We don't have a PowerPoint this morning, so we're going to be kicking it old school, as the kids might say. Actually, the kids probably don't say that anymore. That probably makes me seem old to say that. Uh, makes me seem lame, probably, to say that, really. So, since we don't have a PowerPoint, you will need your Bible open in your lap. Or, I should say, I strongly recommend that you have your Bible in your lap. It will be helpful and beneficial to you. If you open up God's Word to 1 Corinthians, because we're going to be in several places in this uh, magnificent book. Let me also challenge you, as you're turning there, in the next week... Would you sit down and read this book from front to back? I want to challenge you to do that, to, to sit down and to read all 16 chapters of this marvelous letter of the Apostle Paul, and if you can, do it in one sitting. It's estimated that it will take the average reader about an hour to sit down and to read this letter. And I know that you have an hour to spare in the next seven days. Or you probably do, because I know I do. And do you know how I know that? Well, I didn't bring my phone up here. But every Sunday morning, I get a notification on my phone that tells me how much average screen time I, I have for the last week in a day. And it is alarming. And it's disturbing. And I want to say, no, I didn't. But I guess my, you know, my iPhone doesn't lie. It knows how, how many hours I've been looking at it per day. And just out of that chunk, I could spare an hour a day extra to read my Bible. And I bet you're the same way. So let me challenge you. Take an hour this next week. Read through 1 Corinthians in one sitting. And that will benefit you going forward as we continue to take our sermon texts from this book. You'll probably walk away with several questions about the text. And that's a good thing. Some of those may be answered in the coming weeks as we dig into this book. I want, to, I want this series to be about the profound fellowship that we can enjoy as being a part of God's family. And you know, I figure we've been apart for so long, and some from our number still have not made it back yet. We are beginning to reassemble, even though we've been meeting back together for over a month now. We've been apart for so long, I figure we need to relearn how to come together. And that's what this series is going to be about. When you come together from 1 Corinthians. I hope that you're there with me by now. This letter begins like the others from Paul, that Paul writes, that are preserved for us in the New Testament. You've got the name of the writer, there's Paul. And then there's Sosthenes, who is the co-writer of this letter. And it's interesting, he was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth until he converted to Christianity. We learn about that from Acts chapter 18. So, as in most ancient letters, as in the letters of Paul, you've got the name of the writer, or in this case, the writers, the name of the recipient. It's the church of God that is in Corinth. It is to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, the saints in Corinth. You've got a greeting. You've got Paul saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which became a common Christian greeting. And then you've got a thanksgiving or a prayer wish. You have a Paul here saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. The, these are the elements of the ancient letter. We find them here in 1 Corinthians as we do in the other letters that Paul writes. But Paul quickly broaches the first big issue 
the first big problem with this body of believers, with this church, that he wants to address. It's the first of several that he wants to address in just this one letter. And we find out what that issue is when we read verse 11 of chapter 1. So look there with me, please. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, said, Paul says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Who were Chloe's people? This is one of the things that occasions the writing of the letter. Apparently, some people living in Chloe's house, probably Chloe's family members who were Christians in Corinth, had told Paul, listen, we've got some problems going on in our church family that we want you as an apostle, as an inspired writer of Scripture to address. And here's the first one. Paul says, it's been told to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters, quarreling, arguing, infighting, division. The Corinthian church had a problem with division. And it's the first problem, it's the first issue that Paul wants to talk with them about. Division. It has plagued the church from the very beginning. And of course, I don't have to tell you that it still does today. Our family went on a road trip yesterday and we drove the entire length of the state of Alabama from top to bottom. And it's amazing how many different churches you find on seemingly every corner of every town. And this is true throughout the South, especially in our country. All sorts of different churches, different names. The church is greatly divided. God, God's people, Christendom, is greatly divided. And there was a time in our nation's history when it was a little easier to know what this group believed or that group believed because we had some pretty standard large denominations. And based on the sign out front, you could know what this group believed because you could find out what the larger denominational body believed. But in this spiritual, religious climate, there's a new church that seems to pop up every week. And they might be affiliated with the denomination, but then again, they might not be. And so it's much more difficult today to know what a certain group believes and practices than it ever has been. And it seems like the church uh, or Christendom or, you know, God's people, those who claim Christ are more divided than ever. And it's not a new problem. Maybe it's, it's been exacerbated. But when we read Corinthians, we're reminded this is an ancient problem. This is a problem that has plagued the church from the very beginning. The restoration movement, which swept through our country a couple centuries ago, the movement out of which we were born, in a sense, in one way, Churches of Christ, I mean. The restoration movement emphasized both restoring the early church, both practicing New Testament Christianity, believing what it was that the earliest Christians believed, and practicing Christianity as they practiced it, it emphasized the restoration of the early church, but it also emphasized the unification of all Christians, the calling of Christians out of all groups to come together under the banner of Christ and the gospel. So restoration and unity were the rallying cries of the restoration movement, 
And those are worthy goals, and they are goals that we should still be seeking today. And yet, even among churches of Christ, there is division. I spoke a few weeks ago, mentioned that there is division in our churches along racial lines. Many of our congregations were formed in a segregated area, uh, era, rather, excuse me. And in many places, the church remains segregated. You still have predominantly white churches and predominantly black churches. It should have never happened that way. But it did. And it remains that way. And there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. And we shouldn't feel guilty for decisions that were made before we were around, but we should feel some level of responsibility for helping to right the wrongs of the past. So we still have division among churches of Christ, the church along racial lines, and I think that we all know of a congregation that just refuses to interact with another congregation, maybe in the same town, maybe because of a, a problem that blew up many, many years ago that maybe even the current members don't even know what it was about, and yet they know you know, we don't have anything to do with those people, but nobody seems to know why. Division still plagues the church today. The Corinthian Christians, the church in Corinth, struggled with division within their ranks. Why? Well, Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, in the very next verse, what I mean is that each one of you says, hope you're following along with me, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. What was the problem in Corinth? What was it that created division? It was division due to loyalty to human leaders. They had carved themselves up into camps based on the early Christian leader or preacher that they liked best. That they preferred. And so you had a group that said, we, we like Paul, we want to follow Paul, we, we like his style. We like Peter, this group says. We like Apollos, another early Christian leader who did some work in Corinth. And then you had another group who said, we follow Christ. What does that mean? It means that they were treating Christ as if he was just another human leader, another spiritual leader in the early church. And that was a big problem. Don't treat Christ, don't put him on the same level as Paul and Apollos and Peter. So the Corinthians ha had a problem with division, and it was due to their loyalty to human leaders, and it was probably partly determined by how eloquent or well-spoken each of these leaders was. And I say that because of some, some of what Paul says in this letter. In other words, it seemed... The, the more well-spoken a leader was, the more likely he was to attract a following. And people were saying, well, I like his preaching style. I like the way that he, he presents things. And so I'm going to follow after him. And we hear Paul saying in different places in this letter, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, I came to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom. That's not what it's about. Instead, he says in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith 
might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is not about following after eloquent speakers, those who seem to espouse wisdom in in exceptional ways. This is about God. This is about God's power, and you're making it about human personality. Does this happen today? Oh, most certainly. Entire movements and churches and organizations have been built around personalities and preaching styles. And what happens when that leader, well, is caught in in a scandal? Uh, Or in some massive moral failure? Or what happens when that leader dies? The whole thing comes falling down like a house of cards. We've seen it happen. It happens today. It happened then. The church had divided themselves up into camps based on loyalty to human leaders. And so it wasn't differences in core doctrine that created the division in Corinth. It wasn't that they were divided about teachings and doctrines that truly mattered. It was personality differences. It was personal issues. And often churches that divide today do so not over doctrine, but over personality clashes. This elder and that elder don't get along. The eldership and the preacher don't get along. A couple members don't get along. Personality differences, skirmishes, infighting. You know this to be true. I know this to be true. From your own experience, maybe in different congregations, that oftentimes it's not over doctrine that churches split, it's over not just petty stuff. Personal stuff that never, ever, ever should divide the church. It's a tragedy when that happens. It's happening in Corinth. And it happens today. Not over substance, but style. And I'm reminded of, well, it was sort of a mantra of the restoration movement. And it's not from the Bible, but I think that it reflects the teaching of the Bible. And I bet you've heard it before those of you who are older, but I don't think we talk about it as much now as we did in past generations. Here it is, in matters of faith, unity, in matters of opinion, liberty, in all things, love. I love that. And maybe there's some issues with that statement, and you know, it doesn't give the whole story, but I think that's true. I think we would do well to remember that. In matters of faith, unity, in the stuff that really counts, we've got to be together. We've got to be of one mind. But in matters of opinion, liberty. We don't bind matters of opinion on other shoulders, and we certainly don't divide over it. And in all things, in all things, love. Paul says Christians who have a penchant for division, Christians who are eager to create division, who stir the pot, well, he says that's a sign it reveals spiritual immaturity. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I, brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I couldn't even speak to you as the spiritual people that you have been called to be guided by the Spirit of God. You are still acting like you are controlled by the flesh. 
And so I couldn't address you as grown-up Christians just because you're still acting like babies. Babies. He says, I fed you with milk. Not solid food. You weren't ready for the solid food, and you're still not ready, he says. Yeah, it's pretty harsh, Paul. You're still not ready. Why? Verse 3, because you are still of the flesh, while there is jealousy and strife, and we could go on quarreling and infighting and arguments and division. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, and another says, I follow Peter, aren't you just being merely human? It says it reveals your spiritual immaturity. Your proclivity to divide. So Paul says to them, and he says to us, in verse 10, watch this. I appeal to you, brothers, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul, we have to all agree on everything? Well, I don't think Paul is talking about matters of opinion with which we should demonstrate and show liberty. I think he's talking about the stuff that really matters. Important, core, doctrinal convictions on those matters we ought to agree. Paul says, I want you to agree. I don't want there to be any division. I want you to be united in your purpose. I want you to be of the same mind and the same judgment and the same heart. Unity was important to Paul. Unity in the church is important in the New Testament. So important is unity in the church that Paul spends the first, not one, not two, not three, the first four chapters talking about unity. Paul places a very high premium on unity in the church. And he asks, quite simply, but, but profoundly, in chapter 1, verse 13, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, no. And I think he's talking both about the physical body of Christ and the body of Christ, meaning the church. Is the body, the physical body of Christ divided? No, he was hung on a cross. He was buried on the third, on the third day. He rose fully intact. And that body ascended into heaven. Christ is not divided, therefore his church, the body, should not be divided. It's very simple, very simple logic, a very simple argument that Paul puts forth here. And of course we know what Paul says elsewhere in places like, well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says, you, he's talking to a different group of Christians, a different church, he says, you need to be eager not eager to divide. Not looking for ways to tear the church apart. You need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. And we know, of course, what the psalmist says in Psalm 133. Maybe the best known verse in the whole Bible about the beauty of unity Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And I tell you what, I have always been thankful for the commitment of this body of believers to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And I'm thankful for all the prayers that I have heard from this pulpit. Men thanking God and asking Him to continue to bless us with harmony and with peace and with love and with unity. Because Paul in the New Testament places a high premium on unity and we should as well and we have and for that I am deeply grateful. And if we can't bring the global church together or even churches across our land, we can at the very least remain one right here. And we can build bridges where bridges have been busted down or maybe where they didn't even exist in the past. And we can try to bring reconciliation between congregations and we can cooperate with like-minded congregations. We can do our very best right here to maintain the unity that God so desires in His church. But you know, it's one thing to say, be united. Get together. Be of the same mind and of the same heart. It's another thing altogether to explain how. But Paul explains how. And he says, and I'm going to put this succinctly, unity is founded on Christ. That's where it starts. If it doesn't start there, it's doomed to fail. But if it starts there, then you can pursue and achieve unity. It's founded on Christ. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 11. Paul says, inspired by the Spirit, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody ever try to lay another foundation. It's already been laid. You just need to start building on it. The foundation is none other than Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded that we enjoy fellowship with one another only because we have enjoyed fellowship with Christ first. That's what the very first verse of our text this morning said. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You've been called into the fellowship of His Son. You've been brought into the family of God. God, because of Jesus, can now be called Father. He's your father. You're his son. You're his daughter because of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's how we can share fellowship with each other as brothers and sisters. So, looking to human leaders, dividing up into camps based on this one or that one, focusing on personality differences, letting petty things like that carve us up and divide us, marginal, tan tangential issues, Focusing on all that stuff brings division. It has in the past, it will in the future. But when we focus on Christ, we can be unified. And more specifically, more specifically in 1 Corinthians, if we focus on the cross of Christ. There's something very special about the cross of Christ. I don't have to tell you that. If there wasn't something special about the cross, then why would it not be right here? on the front of this 50-year-old podium that we look at every week. We know the significance of the cross, and it's significant to Paul. Listen to some of the things that Paul says about the cross of Christ and how it can bring unity. Chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's not a minimization of the importance of baptism. It, it just reveals that some people in Corinth thought that the baptizer mattered and that there was some sort of bond that was built between the one 
who was baptized and the one doing the baptizing. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. Of course, we must be baptized, but the one who baptizes you accounts for nothing. So I didn't come to baptize. It's important that you are baptized, but it doesn't matter who does it. I came to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's not about me, Paul says. It's not about Peter. It's not about Apollos. It's about the cross. The focus should not be on fancy, eloquent sermons. It should be on what happened on Calvary. And he says a little bit later in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. People thought it was crazy. The notion that the Savior of the world, the Son of God, would submit Himself to the cruelest, most humiliating, most painful death imaginable. Jews thought it was ridiculous, foolish. So did Gentiles. But Paul says, for believers, it is the power, the subversive power of God. The cross. The cross of Christ. And listen to what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. You see a pattern here? Paul says, it's not about eloquence. It's not about lofty speech. It's not about human wisdom. It's not about fancy sermons. I didn't come with all that stuff. I just came with the simple message of Christ. Verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now that doesn't mean that's the only thing He talked about. We know He talks about a lot of other stuff. As we're going to see, as this series plays out, as we go further into 1 Corinthians. And that's not the only thing that we talk about. And whether or not you believe in the cross is not the only limit to fellowship. We find out in chapter 5 that Paul says, you need to put this person out of the church because of something that they had done in hopes that they would repent and return. So it's not that Paul only ever talked about the cross. What this means is it's central to everything else that we talk about. The cross is at the core of everything else that we declare as Christians. It all begins at the cross. Our minds and our hearts should never be far from what happened at Calvary. There's a great word, and I don't know that it's familiar to many of us, but the word is cruciform. I like this word. Because in a word it says that what happened at the cross should shape us as people, as believers. It should shape our thoughts and our hearts and our actions and our lives. We are cross-shaped people. Cruciform. We ought to be people who are thoroughly shaped by our selfless, sacrificial Savior who is willing to lay down His life. Not just for His friends, but also for His enemies. So, the world needs to see a united church. Especially the world we're living in right now. The world needs to see a people who love each other despite some minor differences. The world needs to see a people who are willing to forgive each other. The world needs to see a people who are humble enough to repent when we sin. The world needs to see a church 
that is united, that is of the same mind and heart and judgment, has the same goals. A church whose eyes are fixed not on the power and wisdom of this age, but on the cross. On the cross. I love this quote from Everett Ferguson, who for many years was a Bible professor at Abilene Christian. He writes this in a book called The Church of Christ. He says, why is there a church in the first place? Because believers found one another at the foot of the cross. This is not something we've manufactured on our own. God has brought us together at the foot of the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ. He goes on to say Christians are not together because they first liked each other and chose to be together like some fraternity or sorority or social club or civic group. We are together in Christ. So I say to you as we close the words of a song that remind us what we need to focus on in this world and make no mistake oh some of you are shifting already because you know I'm closing up and I understand that you've heard me preach long enough you know the cues you know the, the signs our attention is being pulled in so many different directions and we we are being indoctrinated by so many different voices. Voices that are not godly. Voices on the news, voices on the left, voices on the right, voices on social media. Don't take your eyes off the cross. The words of the song that I want to share are these. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. If you need Jesus today in any way, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing.